So this morning, I'd like to speak about the theme of mindfulness and its relationship to ethics. And it's been a particularly um, energizing theme. It really is ultimately about how we hold our practice. And it's an issue, can be an issue personally, it can be an issue very much uh, in the larger society as mindfulness is entering so rapidly into this culture. But for me, it's, it's as we look more deeply, and I, I want to kind of take us on an exploration that does this, it really can be a way to say, how do I hold, how do I understand, how do I work with this uh, wonderful practice that we sometimes call mindfulness practice, sati. Part of my motivation for exploring this theme, and I'll, I'll say, you know, briefly, or shortly, not briefly, but shortly, not briefly, <laughs> I'll say shortly, um, why, um, or what, what, I, what I mean by the theme more, more precisely. But part of the motivation came from a discussion that a number of people on the Teachers' Council had just two days ago. And we had probably a little less than half of the people in the Teachers' Council met informally. And we were talking about the uh, phenomenon that we were calling uh, secular mindfulness. The bringing of mindfulness into the secular world in so many ways. And, you know, if we, if we would look and track what's happening, and I've talked from time to time about this, we would see that uh, mindfulness is being brought in under the name of mindfulness in a number of ways, and other people are bringing in mindfulness and saying mindfulness is a Buddhist-tainted word. We'll call it awareness, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But mindfulness is being brought into so many settings. It's being brought into education. I think you know that there's the program called Mindful Schools, which has brought mindfulness into the Bay Area for over 15,000 elementary school students, including a number, you know, probably half or the, maybe even the majority, in actually fairly low-income areas. So it's not just something for the privileged elites, but it's gone into the school system generally. Mindfulness has been brought into higher education. There are grants available for people to bring mindfulness into university life. Um, there's a program which I visited at Brown University uh, where one can major in contemplative studies as a legitimate major. And that there are a number of programs across the country where one can do that. And it's expanding you know, fairly, fairly rapidly. They, you know, I, I was invited and, and stayed at Brown for four or five days about two years ago. And their connection of mindfulness links the undergraduate curriculum with the medical school, with scientific research, and so forth. It quite, was quite, quite impressive. We could see how mindfulness is being brought into the corporate setting. Several Spirit Rock uh, teachers have worked with corporations. Sometimes, uh, you know, a CEO, I remember of one of the uh, a leading high-tech companies said, we want a mindful workplace. Help us wow. see how to do that. 
You know, so mindfulness is going into corporate settings. Many of you know, you know, Google has brought in meditation teachers and you know, are given support for you know, using their time, uh, even at Google, to what have do yoga, meditation, and so forth. Um, mindfulness is brought into is be, has been brought extensively into sports. You know, the, on, in the, at the professional basketball level, the coach Phil Jackson had Michael Jordan meditating. It was the highest level, and they won. You know what, six championships, right? Um, mindfulness has been brought into uh, police work, the military, it's been brought into medicine, it's been maybe most extensively being brought, been brought into psychology and psychotherapy, where I was talking um, about a month, month and a half ago with a friend who's a psychiatrist and he said that um, the increase of attention to mindfulness in psychological settings is one of the two most powerful trends of the decade in the whole psychological field. Right? So you have being brought into work in psychology, medicine, trauma, some of the leading ways to work with trauma. Um, particularly, some of many of you know EMDR, which works with eye movements, is really in many ways a mindfulness-based uh, practice. It's one of the major ways to work with trauma. You know, and we could go on and on. We could talk about um, how it's being brought into um, yoga, work with the aging, and so forth. So there's a tremendous expansion. And we were talking about this and saying, well, this is happening willy-nilly. What should Spirit Rock do? Should we have a presence in this movement, or are we kind of like graduate school or something like that of people? <laughs> you know. and, and, but there also, there also were concerns. There also were concerns expressed. Is mindfulness being disconnected from the larger setting? Is mindfulness being taught as a technique, for example? Um, when I studied a wonderful approach and had an extensive training in body-based psychotherapy in the so-called Hakomi method of body-based psychotherapy, it was a wonderful practice, I was surprised initially when mindfulness was presented matter, very matter-of-factly just as going inward. Go inside, see what's there. And I remember one of our first assignments, we were given a short description of what mindfulness is, and then immediately said, here's your exercise now, here's your training exercise. You have five minutes to induce mindfulness in your client. Do it. <laughs> and again, I'm, I, I think it was that, um, catalyzed an interesting discussion I had with the trainers, <laughs> you know, and I shared some of my own uh, work and uh, I, ha I had developed uh, a, a lot of, uh, I developed handouts on mindfulness that had, you know, quotations from the suttas as well as contemporary teachers and so forth. And um, we had, had a good dialogue because I was very respectful of the approach, but it surprised me that mindfulness was treated so briefly, 
you know, and, and so um, at times mindfulness seems limited, seems like it's being taught selectively. So it really led me, among other things, to ask questions about what, how do we understand mindfulness and in particular, this was a concern that we had in the discussion, was in particular, are there dangers in the way that mindfulness is being brought into society of mindfulness being separated out from ethics and from the wisdom dimension? So that we could imagine perhaps someone, and I'm sure this is happening all the time, someone perhaps in a corporate setting who, in which mindfulness is taught as a way to be more peaceful or to know what you're feeling. And yet, they, you know, in, we could imagine it conceivably in some corporation that's actually using resources in a way that's depleting the resources of the earth and increasing useless commodities, right? And they could do that in a more mindful way. Or we could imagine, you know, again, questions could be raised. Is mindfulness simply a technique for knowing what's going on inside, for being peaceful, for relaxing? Is that what mindfulness is? And so I think it really, to me, raises a lot of questions, you know, uh, about how we understand mindfulness both in our own practice and how it's being brought into larger society. Is mindfulness simply about knowing what's going on, being peaceful, relaxing, learning to not have one's mind be so crazy? Or is there a larger horizon? And what I'm going to suggest is that traditionally the horizon is liberation. And traditionally the horizon involves a very intimate connection between mindfulness, ethics, and wisdom. And that's what I want to explore. So I think it's partly about our own practice. It's really about, is our practice of mindfulness limited to my own just cooling out a little bit? Sometimes it is. And I'm not, I don't want to um, criticize that in some um, general way. Because I think, as, as I'll come to explore, I think there are definitely moments when that's the primary function and that's can be for each of us at certain times or developmentally it can be very valuable just to have a very limited sense of mindfulness in which we just settle, find some temporary peace. But if that becomes the horizon and that's all it is, then there can be problems. You know? And these problems have been seen at other times historically. You know, there's been a lot of very interesting scholarship about some of the ways, for example, that Buddhism and meditation were used in Japan, in particularly in the first part of the 20th century. There's been some very interesting scholarship done on how essentially meditation was linked to militarism and fascism in Japan with Zen masters of the highest order cooperating. You know, there, the, there's, a, there's a book by Brian Victoria called Zen at War, which gives a pretty full documentation. I think I'll, I brought in 
This is the first time I've used my computer for a quotation. But I, um, here's, this is from a Zen master counseling Japanese troops in World War II. When ordered to march, tramp, tramp. When ordered to fire, bang, bang. This is the clearest expression of the highest Bodhi wisdom, the unity of Zen and war. So the book is full of such quotations. And I, I was present once at a gathering in Asia where a very prominent Zen teacher, this was about 10 years ago, gave a, an apology to, to an international group of people concerned with the relation of Buddhism and how we respond to the world. And he gave an apology, which, which has happened a number of times, although it didn't happen for a long time after World War II. He said, we lost our ethical moorings. Meditation got disconnected from the ethical moorings. And we apologize for that. It was, very, it was a very powerful moment you know, in, this, in this gathering. So I want to explore that. And I was thinking of that in, in, in a larger picture, really, which is that I, mean, I think not only can mindfulness get disconnected from ethics, but it also can get disconnected from the heart and from wisdom. And I think that, and I, I was, I'll have to see where I am at the end, but I was thinking of focusing in successive weeks on how mind, what the larger vision is of how mindfulness gets integrated with the heart, with wisdom, with ethics. We could also probably say with the body. You know? And what this larger vision is, because this, to me this is a larger vision of our practice, and how that's sometimes hard to develop in practice. Sometimes mindfulness gets, gets more limited. Or Sometimes we think, oh, here's mindfulness, here's loving-kindness practice. They're separate. You know, we always talk in the metta retreat. This is a, and I'm sure Sylvia said this probably many times here. We talk about the interpenetration of mindfulness and heart practices, mindfulness and metta. But it's not always clear how that works. It's not always clear how mindfulness and wisdom are connected. So I was thinking of having a theme which has, in the long run, giving a really a broad sense of how we hold our practice and how mindfulness, ethics, wisdom, and the heart are interconnected, which is our deeper vision, and how to practice that so that that is more the case in one's own practice. That's my, that was my motivation. You know, and it's also something that I, I learn in exploring the theme quite a bit, too, because it helps <coughs> articulate, articulate things. And, but it was, it was energized by this discussion. You know, I've been thinking about these themes for quite a while, but it was energized by the discussion we had just two days ago. Because we, we all had similar concerns, um, some, some more than others, but we were wanting to, wanting to see, well, what can we contribute? And maybe part of what Spirit Rock could contribute is to have, is to really support this larger vision, which as I'll show, is not a new vision. <laughs> It's not a new vision, but maybe the way it gets articulated in this culture right now is new.
I'll just say one or two more words and then I'll uh, talk about uh, mindfulness and uh, its place in the larger understanding of practice and then more directly on mindfulness and ethics. So one of my interests over the years has been to understand better how mindfulness and other meditation practices are coming into this culture. And one of the ways I've understood that is to understand the historical context of our culture. You know, what's going on broadly in the culture and then the, both the, the um, wonderful ways that when meditation and spirituality come into this culture, where that really is helpful. But also the other side of it is knowing that there are, <clears throat> there are the very strong forms of conditioning in this culture and it's predictable that meditation wouldn't simply be this wonderful gift that just leads onward and upwards to better things, but that it would tend to be interpreted in terms of the conditioning of the society, which would tend to distort it. An example, how meditation gets used maybe very selectively. Now, I could say a lot about this. I'll just say a few words. One of the characteristics, I think, of the contemporary world is that in many ways, the mind and thinking and science get disconnected, guess what, from the heart, wisdom, and ethics. <laughs> One of the great challenges of our times is that science and technology have almost had this autonomous development separate from questions of what's right, what's helpful, what's ethical. Not totally but to a large extent. So you'll see where I'm going. What I'm suggesting is that the tendency to interpret mindfulness selectively would be predictable, given the nature of the culture and the way that we often separate the mind from the heart, from the body. And that, the, to me, the vision of practice and what can be so helpful is pointing to how those get in- integrated and connected. In other words, there's a lot of fragmentation in the culture. The heart gets separated from the mind. Everyone has to deal with issues of being disembodied, especially with all the electronic media. And where is our wisdom to help us with what's going on? You know, you know, the wisdom dimensions of our religions have been submerged for a long time. Again, any of these comments could be the subject of two-hour discourses. <laughs> okay. So that, I, I could say a lot more there, but it's just to say that we live in a context in which we have this fragmentation. We have this disconnection. It's there in the universities when you studied. You know, you studied knowledge, but how much was there an ethical framework? How should we do this? Well, of course, there are exceptions, but by and large, those disconnections are quite strong between knowledge and ethics, really the heart, compassion, and wisdom. And so I think one of the great contributions of spiritual practices is that I think spirituality is inherently integrative when it's mature. It's essentially about wholeness. And so it can be potentially a tremendous gift 
in a culture which gets fragmented so much. And it also can help, that kind of analysis can help it be predictable that we would get fragmented somewhat in our use of meditation, you know, which is, which is almost inevitable. People do wonderful retreats and then they go home. <laughs> You know, and how do we apply this at home where we have wonderful, peaceful sessions here on Wednesdays and then there's the rest of our life. And the great challenge, I think, of our practice is how to make everything connected, how to have mindfulness, the good heart, in the daily flow of life, right? It's a great challenge. We don't have the support of monasteries where, or of retreats where every moment it's like a reminder, hey you, remember to be mindful. You're at a retreat, we have that support, as those of you who've done retreats know. What do we have in daily life? So that's, the, that's some of the backdrop for this. So I think that this topic of connecting mindfulness and ethics is not just a small little topic. It actually is one of the keys to healing this whole culture. Does that have some plausibility? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So. Interesting to look at the traditional view of mindfulness. And what's very interesting is that there's a term called, and maybe a distinction, between mindfulness as a factor of mind and what could be called, what is called right mindfulness just like right view, right concentration. That's a translation of the word uh, sama-sati. Sama is the word translated as right. I think it came up last time I was here. People were asking, isn't that sense of right kind of tight? You know, or aren't there dangers of attachment? And I mentioned how I think it's a bad translation, that the word sama I think should be better translated as something like mature or realize that the, the word, as I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, has an etymology that links it to English words like summary or summation. It's the same, same roots, which has to do, I think, with some sense of completion or maturity or realization. And the word right, I think, is a Wrong translation. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> so, that being said, you, I, I urge us to think of samasati in the sense more of maturity or completion. Uh, and so, what is then, I'll, I'll use the word mature, what is mature mindfulness? It's talked about a lot. Samasati is what's talked about when mindfulness is talked about in terms of the Eightfold Path. And every factor of the Eightfold Path is understood as uh, being developed towards maturity. The aim is sama or mature view, mindfulness, mature speech, mature livelihood, mature action, mature concentration, and so forth. And so what does, what does samasati mean? Because it's interesting, in the text, 
there's an understanding of what is usually translated as wrong mindfulness. It's interesting. Sometimes it's thought mindfulness is always good or always unproblematic, but actually in the ancient text there's a sense of wrong, of, it's called micha sati, translated as wrong mindfulness, or maybe we could say immature mindfulness. And it's typically understood as what happens when mindfulness gets separated out from the other factors of the path. So what characterizes mature mindfulness? It's linked with ethics, with wisdom, with mature view. And this is what characterizes mature mindfulness as opposed to ordinary mindfulness. That it's part, we might say, <coughs> of a program for liberation. <coughs> so, <coughs> so one, here's a, here's a quotation from the text. What is mature mindfulness? I'm in my own translation. <laughs> what is mature mindfulness? Here a practitioner dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in, re- in regard to the world. And I'll come back to that. What, what's being given is a, is a formula. It's going through the four foundations of mindfulness, which are attending to the body, attending to feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, attending to what we might call thoughts and feelings, and attending to uh, patterns of experience and um, different, different sets of phenomena of experience. So these are, in mindfulness practice, this is what mindfulness means. It's the attending to these phenomena with a sense of presence, and fullness and uh, clarity. Now, the other phrases that were given here, ardent, clearly comprehending, having removed longing and ejection in regard to the world, uh, occur repeatedly in the text. And the, the ardent quality has to do with the sense of diligence and of wise effort. So, you, so we start to see that mature mindfulness has to have a lot of effort, has to have a kind of continuity. I think there's also a moral quality in the sense of diligence. It's of really doing what needs to be done, you know, of giving one's energy out. Then it says clearly comprehending. This is the word is a sampajanya. This is usually translated as clear comprehension. This brings in the wisdom factor. So you see that mindfulness of a mature kind integrates wisdom. And I'll give some further passages where we can see that there's an integration of ethics. And so it said, one dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in regard to the world. So there's also the sense, we could translate this as saying, when one's mindful, there's non-reactivity. That mature mindfulness can be with phenomena be with experience without either grabbing hold of it, that is a way of translating or saying what longing means, or pushing it away. You know, that, that would be a more accessible vocabulary for us, probably, the, the language of the old text, longing and dejection. You know, what's that mean? But I think it, it means what we can ordinarily take it to mean, 
that mindfulness has a quality, mature mindfulness has a quality of non-reactivity. There's a kind of peacefulness and we're not grabbing hold of experience and we're not unconsciously or compulsively pushing it away. And it goes on to say, one dwells contemplating the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in the feeling tone, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating the mind and heart, in the mind and the heart. And it goes on and talks about looking at all phenomena in this way. And uh, there's this way in which when the quality of mature mindfulness bring, is links mindfulness. Mindfulness is developed in a differentiated way, in a specialized way. We work with the breath as the instructions we had. But mature mindfulness is linked with wisdom. And this is what gives it its power. So mature mindfulness, I would say, is linked with the heart, it's linked with wisdom, it's linked with ethics. Another very interesting reading which links the ethical dimension very explicitly. It's basically saying one needs a certain degree of ethical development really to, to cultivate mature mindfulness. You have to, another, we could say it in this way, unless you have your ethical act somewhat together, you're going to be too restless in your mind to meditate. You know, and so there's a suggestion that really a grounding ethically is crucial for mindfulness. Here's the way it said, again, 2,600 years ago. Purify the very starting point. And what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue. There's another way to say ethics. That is well purified. And view, that is straight. So it's sort of saying mature understanding and ethical grounding, and mature understanding is linked with wisdom. Mature understanding, wisdom, and ethical grounding are the starting point for then practicing mindfulness. Virtue that is well purified, view that is straight, then practitioner, when your virtue is well purified and your view is straight, based upon virtue, established on virtue, you should develop the four foundations of mindfulness. And so we see that mindfulness is presented in the context in in which it gets interfused, interpenetrates with (coughs) wisdom, with ethics, with the other dimensions of the path. It also also has a protective quality. There, There are these wonderful passages, some of you may know, where it's said that mindfulness is... Um, mindfulness protects us when we do mindfulness, our mindfulness practice protects others. That there is, we might say, a caring quality linked with the mindfulness, a caring and protective quality. That it has, we could call that, it has ethical import. There's also a way that um, that all of this is interfused with the spirit of metta. You know, there's that some of you know this wonderful story in the text where the Buddha's assistant, Ananda, is talking to the Buddha and he says, you know, Buddha, I was thinking. And the Buddha says, yes. <laughs> and Ananda says, having good friends 
And the word for friend is, uh, is mita, which is the same root as metta. And the root of met, metta, the etymology of our word for loving kindness, is being friendly, basically. And a lot of people prefer to translate metta as great friendliness rather than loving kindness. So it's interesting. And so the whole, he says, so the Ananda says, having good friends is really important. It's at least half of the spiritual life. And the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. <laughs> Verily. <laughs> Verily, having good friends is not half of the holy life. It is the entirety of the holy life or the, the, the spiritual life. And then we could say that this ground of friendship, community, and the good heart is right at the center and it interfuses all of these dimensions. That's, so that's my, I think that's my grounding in the classical tradition for, for making that point. I think it's especially crucial now, you know, as I mentioned, partly because of our historical conditioning in which there may be tendencies to use meditation in this more limited way and not to connect it always with ethics or with the heart or with wisdom. Just to say, let me have a little bit of peace, thank you, or let me just relax, you know. And, and again, maybe the ways that mindfulness are being brought in to the world may sometimes be limited in that way, especially because there's sense of it not bringing in religion, right? It's tricky, tricky issues, you can see. And yet, if that's all the horizon is, it, it can become limited. And I say we would be a danger for the ethical um, <coughs> distortions and myopia that, in the worst case scenario, were found in Japan in the first. I think we'd be a danger at that if we don't bring our mindfulness actually into all the parts of our lives and connect it with our wisdom, with our heart, with our ethics at a time of tremendous demand in the world. Will we use meditation simply to relax more as the world is burning? It's a kind of a provocative way maybe of saying it. How do we want to use our mindfulness? How do we understand it? Is it a way for a privileged middle class to become a little more peaceful? Again, it could be that's a provocative way to say that. You know, or do we want to have mindfulness really be linked with the with these other dimensions. This is how a, a Buddhist scholar uh, named Andrew Olensky, who teaches at the um, Sister Institution of Spirit Rock and at IMS in Massachusetts, he writes this: True mindfulness is deeply and inextricably embedded in the notion of wholesomeness, and which really has to do with with the ethical dimension. Just as a tree removed from the forest is no longer a tree, but a piece of lumber, so also the caring attentiveness of mindfulness extracted from its matrix of wholesome co-arising factors degenerates into mere attention. True mindfulness is deeply and inextricably embedded in the notion of wholesomeness. Just as a tree removed from the forest is no longer a tree but a piece of lumber, so also the caring attentiveness of mindfulness extracted from its matrix of wholesome co-arising factors degenerates into mere 
attention, or we could say into mere technique. You know? So it's challenging. So I was thinking of one other point, and then I want to suggest how do we make this real practically in our lives, if, you know, if, you, if, if this has some resonance. I was also thinking of the way that we, we tend often to have mindfulness be something more inner. It's more of an inner practice, as in how mindfulness was interpreted in that example from my psych- the psychotherapy training that I had. Uh, the, that, and yet if you look in the text, it said mindfulness should be both internal and external. That's rarely brought out into the way that we train in mindfulness. It's mostly an inner practice, which has its value, of course. But it's very interesting, and it hasn't been developed much in Western, among Western teachers. But mindfulness is also something that we bring not just to our inner lives, but to looking at the world. You know, and I was thinking about this in relationship to, again, this is where one way that we can start connecting mindfulness and ethics. I was thinking about this in relation to a book that a friend wrote named um, Stephanie Kaza who used to live in the Bay Area. I don't know if anyone knows Stephanie. She moved to Vermont about maybe 15 years ago, and she teaches now women's studies and environmental studies, as well as Buddhism, at uh, University of Vermont in, in Burlington, Vermont. And she's written several books. One of them, the most recent ones, is called Mindfully Green, which is in the bookstore. And she did a book uh, quite a while ago, which... Um, was basically, I don't know if it was called, I forget the exact title, it may have been called Conversations with Trees. And actually her partner is a wonderful artist, and he, in the book, no, it's called An Attentive Heart, I think that's what it is. It's an attentive, I think it's called The Attentive Heart. And it was basically about being mindful of trees. It was very beautiful, you know, and it's a beautiful mindfulness practice. In fact, one of my earliest practices that I ever did, I would sit and listen to a creek and just be with the creek for hours on end, you know, in the mountains in Virginia. When, when, you know, um, and Stephanie did this, did this, did sustained mindfulness with trees. Maybe I can bring in a passage next time. I was thinking about this while driving. <laughs> so I wasn't, wasn't just totally being mindful of the road. I was thinking, because I was, you know, the creative process was at work. And so um, I thought of Stephanie's book, and it was very beautiful. It not only has these beautiful pictures, and she basically, the book is about meditations with, I think, 20 or 25 different trees. And sometimes when she's mindful of trees, it's not just about bare attention of the color or the form, but sometimes she'll notice, oh, part of the tree is burnt. Oh, struck by lightning. Or she might be attentive to where there was a mark of a chainsaw. What she basically found was as, as she was mindful with trees, it didn't stay simply with sense experiences. It took her into the whole history of trees in that place and the cutting of trees, deforestation, the whole story. That when she had sustained mindfulness of trees, and we could think of this if we are mindful of another person, 
when I'm mindful of another person, it takes me into the joys, the sorrows, the history of that person. And she did that with trees. And it really, her sustained mindfulness outwardly with trees developed into a sustained, caring, ethically grounded understanding of interconnection. That's the wisdom dimension. And also for her in that book, the need for action at times. It was very beautiful how sustained mindfulness by itself understood in the sense of this path of practice that we're on connected with the heart, you know, the caring for the trees, connected with the wisdom of interconnection, connected with the ethical dimension of being aware, we might say, of the pain of the trees, the pain of the forest, and what what might be done. What was her last name again? Uh, Kaza, K-A-Z-A. I think it is called, it's either The Attentive Heart, I think it's called An Attentive Heart. It's a beautiful book, has wonderful wood carvings, or um, I think, not wood carvings, but more like um, line drawings of trees. So what to do if we're, if we're drawn to this? How to make these connections? Part of it, I think, comes in working with intention at the beginning of a practice session or during the day. So intention is quite important. And, you know, often we might say, it's with the way we do our dedication of merit, we might, in our intentions and in our dedication of merit at the end, we remember that we're practicing not just for ourselves but for others. Remember how I say that almost every time? That's really an intention practice. We can do that at the beginning. I personally do practices every time I sit where I say I am intending to awaken for the benefit of others. You know, so that's one way we can bring in some of these dimensions is to say I practice with intention. I do this for myself. I also do this for others with whom I come in contact. That's one way to make these connections. The, the, the main way, I think, is the fact that if we give attention not just to mindfulness but also to wisdom and ethics and give regular sustained attention, which really is about having all of the dimensions of the Eightfold Path, when we do that, they start to mingle. I was thinking of when I was practicing a little while ago, I... um, I asked a Tibetan teacher who I'd worked with for some guidance, and he said, well, do these three practices. And they were basically heart practices, concentration practice, and then there was a a kind of a large awareness practice that I was working with. He said, do all three of them. Don't just do one. And what I found is when I did all three in a retreat, some every day, they mingle with each other. It's very, very interesting. They mingle with each other. So concretely, if we're interested in this, we might do something very simple. We might, once a week or even every session, take five minutes to just read the ethical precepts. Or there are some beautiful versions, you know. Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful version of the ethical precepts, which some of you know, which is in the book Being Peace. And there, it's, you know, in some communities, would have a recitation of the ethical precepts once a week or more often. So actually just to pay attention, reflect on the ethical precepts for five minutes every day or once or twice a week, it will tend to mingle these dimensions. Reflect on the wisdom dimension. Reflect on impermanence. 
reflect on interconnection, reflect on the roots of suffering. You know, this is a lot of what we do in our talks as we bring in the wisdom dimension here. So you could listen to a lot of talks. But I think that's going to be the main suggestion, is to work first with intention and then have a component of your practice day, could, at, least during, at least a few times during the week, once, could be once or twice during the week, that in addition to mindfulness, brings in the heart dimension, do some metta, doing five or ten minutes of metta, will tend to mingle these together. You know, and so the mindfulness has that quality of caring attention, not just kind of disembodied attention, but this caring embodied attention. So do some metta, five or ten minutes a day, goes a long way. And, and just sort of, it's, I was thinking of this kind of, maybe I'll end with this, it's kind of like, I was imagining like a pilot before takeoff. Okay? You sit and you say, okay. <laughs> sit. okay. Okay. Intention? Okay. Do intention. Check. Okay. Okay. Ready. Okay. When am I going to be doing the heart dimension? Okay. We'll do, we'll do five minutes of metta at the end. Check. Okay. Okay. Ethics. Okay. I'll reflect some on ethics for five minutes. Okay. Check. Okay. Okay. How about wisdom? Where am I going to bring in wisdom? Well, maybe I'll, I'll count going once a week on Wednesday. That's wisdom. (laughs) Okay. Maybe. Okay. And maybe I'll listen to another talk or something or do some reading. I'll do reading later in the day. You know, something like that. Okay. Check. Okay. Ready for takeoff. Okay. Start mindfulness. Okay. And that, that very simply, I think is an eminently practical way to follow the main um, suggestion of this whole talk. I think I'll just end with um, Thich Nhat Hanh's version of this sense of the connection of mindfulness and ethics. I'll end with this. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. Mindfulness must be engaged. That's one way of saying it. Let's just sit for a moment now. So it's okay to do the questions, yeah. So any questions, comments, reflections? It's really, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? It can kind of help ones, it's, it's, it's something that has implications on a personal level about how I do my practice, how I understand my practice, and it also has a lot of larger social implications, cultural implications, how we are taking in meditation, the, the uh, benefits and the possible dangers. Yeah. Other, please, did you have your hand up? Yeah. 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 Um, you, and I'll repeat the question. Okay, you were talking about um, 
mindfulness is attending to specific phenomena. Yeah. And I missed what those were. Okay. Yeah, the the um, mindfulness in the traditional uh, way of understanding it is understood maybe both in terms of what are the qualities of mindfulness, such as presence, being able to um, see clearly, you know, and some of those links with wisdom and so forth. And it's also understood in the main places that mindfulness attends. In other words, one's not just asked to be mindful in some vague and general way, but it says if you want to grow in wisdom and the big heart, attend in these directions. Give, give your attention here. And, says, and, and, so, and there are four, there are just four of them. We might want to add some others, but it, classically there are four. There's the body, there's the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That's very important because if we don't notice that pleasant without awareness and mindfulness tends to lead to grabbing hold of the pleasant to make it stay. And if we don't notice the unpleasant, we will tend to react by pushing away the unpleasant. And we, know, we know that probably from our experience very, very clearly. It's a lot of what we might look at in a meditation session. That's the second. The third is being able to be mindful with thoughts and emotions. And that's, again, we could, could, we could do a whole session on that. And the fourth is a little more general. It's uh, the traditional term is mindfulness of dhammas, D-H-A-M-M-A-S. And it's, it's in the main text is translated as phenomena, which is an imperfect translation. It really, because in the text what one's asked to do is to give attention to the phenomena through the lens, through the lens of certain teachings. So the most important one, in, in my view, is to actually look at phenomena through the lens of the four truths, of seeing suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and what leads to the cessation of suffering. And other lenses are the five hindrances and the uh, seven factors of awakening. So it's, I almost see it, you know, sometimes when I do shorthand for the fourth one, I think of it as in terms, okay, the first three are about learning to attend to the constituents of experience, and the fourth is about the larger patterns of experience. That's how I like to think about it in a, in a more simple way. And it, it's a little arbitrary in my view what's included in the fourth. It could just be, I would include the fourth foundation would be when we start noticing the patterns of our own habits, for example. I would call that part of the fourth foundation. You notice that your mindfulness lets you know that every time someone, um, when you say something and the person ignores you, you get reactive. That would, to me, fit under the the fourth foundation. Okay. Uh, Please. Um, I was wondering how you see the work of Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. Yeah. Way, yeah. It seems to be of tremendous benefit. Yeah. And I know that he is a practitioner. Maybe it depends on who does the secular yeah. teaching. I don't know. But how do you see his work? Well, uh, the question is about how do I see John Kabat-Zinn's work? Uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction is the rubric that it's come into the world through. And you know, I actually have known him for a long time. I was actually part of a small group with him 
in Boston in 1979 when he says, I've got this idea. <laughs> it's an interesting moment. Yeah, I was, I was sitting in his house in the living room with 10 other people. It was a little meditation group at that time. And he said, I want to, you know, he was doing like biochemistry research. He said, I want to really live my deeper values. And he, you know, he took a risk and went, did that. Um, there are a lot of enormously tricky issues about how do you bring mindfulness into secular settings, you know, and how do you bring it into the medical setting. It can be of tremendous benefit. Um, and um, I don't know, it, it's, I don't, this is, these were some of the dilemmas we point to. I think it, it, that could be of tremendous benefit, and that's a field probably where ethical issues might not arise in the same way as if you had a corporation that was maybe doing questionable work and had questionable practices was using mindfulness and maybe in a more restricted way. So I think the ethical issues, you know, arise in some settings more than others, you know. Um, I think it's conceived of as in a few ways, and and, um, I think um, you know, a lot of people increasingly aren't even wanting to use the word mindfulness. So on the one hand, there's the challenge of how do you bring this into a setting in a non-Buddhist way, in a way that can have the benefits of mindfulness, but not have it be framed religiously. And I think they did that very, very skillfully in a very, very helpful way. They also, I think, sometimes see that people who they, I think, I don't know, I haven't been witness to one of those programs, but I imagine that they say, if you want to go further, here are some ways of doing it. You know, that you may, if you want to go further, you may want to go into this context or do a retreat or whatever. So it's sometimes talked about that that kind of work can be a so-called Dharma door. It's a doorway for some people to experience meditation. Um, I think you know, for me, the, the crucial issue would be on kind of a certain degree of honesty and directness and saying that um, I think it's fine to say, I think it's fine to say here we're learning certain techniques can be helpful. Some of this was taken from a tradition in which it's connected more fully with ethics and wisdom. And we think that's quite important. And we just, you know, want to let you know that we're learning it in a more restricted way. That, I think that's, I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud somewhat. But that seems, that's sort of, you know, for me, having clarity of the larger map is what's crucial. And there are a lot of legitimate settings, including when we first learn meditation, I think it's very valuable not to just bring it in all into the world and think about ethical issues and just have a, I think it's very valuable sometimes just to have a certain focus on individual peace in the beginning can be really, really valuable. You know, and to have more on the table would be complicating it. But then I would want to do so and you know, at least mention that there is a larger vision. That's, that's how I tend to think it out. Does, does that make some sense? Yeah, please. Doesn't the one lead to the other? If you introduce it into, let's say, a corporation, yeah. uh, and someone looked through that people of, Mm-hmm. It may lead them to a much bigger. Outcome. Would yeah. So the question is, or the comment is, would mindfulness potentially lead to a bigger vision? For example, someone would, in a corporation, would learn mindfulness. It could lead to something bigger. 
It might. It also might not. <laughs> you know, the Japanese example is right there. You know, and a lot of it depends on the context and how much room for it expanding there is. If there's not much room, then it might not have, be able to expand. But I think that's the case. And that's why it's, it's a challenging situation because it's, it, it really can go in different directions. Yeah, please. Yeah. which was a, a discipline um, with the Eightfold Path and everything else. Yeah, with the limbs Eight Limbs of Yoga, yeah. Um, and it's become corporatized. And what they've done is it's yoga lattes, it's yoga aerobics. And, but, but what they do, which is really dangerous, is they put a veneer of spirituality yeah. on top of it, which is about this deep. Yeah. Um, and it's about sweating, and it's about music, and it's yeah. about candles. Yeah. And then people walk out of the yoga studio looking derisively at people who don't have the right outfit. Um, and they walk on your mat and they throw their mat on top of yours and they go out in the parking lot and cut you off. Um, and they think, but what's really dangerous is they think they are reaching higher levels of spiritual development through candles, music, and sweating. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, for the sake of those listening, for the sake of those listening in the future, it was a, it was a comment about how there's some um, tendencies to have a very selective and limited way of bringing uh, yoga into certain settings. Uh, that again, uh, yoga in India was present, you know, the Hatha yoga was presented typically in a, the framework of the eight limbs of yoga, which is very parallel to the Eightfold Path, quite interesting. And uh, generally, I mean, it's another example, it's been, uh, again, not everywhere, but in many places, it's, you know, a piece of a whole path has been taken out and presented maybe as exercise. And the same thing has happened with the martial arts, you know. Um, very similar patterns, things have happened with the martial arts where they've been taken out of uh, deeply spiritual frameworks and just very turned into a certain kinds of technique. Maybe last comment? Yeah. It's just, it's just a comment yeah. on the Tibetan tradition. Yeah. Um, any practice yeah. that is done without bodhicitta yeah. Not the right mind is considered useless. Yeah. And Sakya Pandita said it's like the two wings of a bird. Yeah. If you don't have both, you're not going to fly. It's not going to lead to liberation. It's yeah. not going to lead ultimately to the Buddhist yeah. goal. Yeah. So the comment is is really really saying that in the Tibetan tradition, I think it's quite parallel. Is you know that what I was saying from the the ancient text was that that everything has to be connected with other factors of the path where it becomes wrong mindfulness or immature mindfulness. And he's saying that in Tibetan tradition, there's a, a sense that everything has to be connected with what's called bodhicitta, which is another way of saying that one does the practices for the benefit of others and that that's the primary motivation. And then to, and if, it, if that's not there, in some traditions it's said that whatever one does would not be worth anything, right? So. Um, so, okay, I'm going to finish. Interesting topic, right? Yes. Provocative. Um, I'll, I'll do some threads next time. I'll see if any of you have suggestions. I'm th- going to have threads. I'm thinking that maybe to focus a little bit more 
on mindfulness and metta and the, inter- the connection of the heart. We're really following up your comment of the heart with mindfulness and kind of continuing with the larger theme of how is mindfulness part of a liberatory path and we can continue to look at the contemporary world because I think we find these things. I think we have to be compassionate. Um, I think that was your comment really that someone in a corporate setting that is mindfulness, it could be the first step in development of a bodhisattva or a beautiful being, you know, and so there's nothing so it's, it's a lot of potential and all the potential is both for beautiful things happening and for things being more limited, <coughs> even potentially uh, negative, I have to say. And so my suggestion then for our own practice is to work practically, with, you know, like I did with that um, pilot check-off. <laughs> uh, pre-flight check. Pre-flight check. Pre-meditation check. But that... It's really the saying that if you, have, if you have some way this week in which you bring attention to your intention, which could be to help others, that would bring in heart qualities, also ethical sense, and some grounding in the ethical precepts and in wisdom in some way. Again, being with talks, doing some reading could help with or reflecting on impermanence or in some other qualities could help with that. And the ethics could be especially just to do some reading or some remembering of one's commitment to um, non-harming, to not taking that which is not given, to and being careful with speech and with uh, sexuality and with substances which shift consciousness. Those are the five lay precepts. You know, beautiful version, Thich Nhat Hanh's version, read that once or twice a week, that would go a long way. So, okay, so let's sit quietly just for a moment and maybe to reflect on what was helpful from today and your own intention for taking this forward if this, if this resonated with you. We close as we almost always do with a traditional dedication of merit. May our own practice be of benefit to ourselves, to all of those with whom we come in contact, and beyond that circle of contact, out into the world in known and unknown ways for the benefit of all beings. <laughs> 